You're listening to Uptown Radio. It's Friday, May 15th. I'm Will Walkie. And I'm Tay Glass. When COVID-19 patients leave the ICU, it's just the start of a long recovery process. I'm probably at like, I would say 60 or 70 percent The Supreme Court will soon make a decision about DACA. Immigrant communities fear the consequences. I'm not going back to China. And I'm not going to marry someone so that I can have my green card. Many college students and professors question the quality of a virtual education. What we're doing today in light of COVID, I don't consider that really online learning. And wineries in upstate New York have to build new relationships with customers online. Some are finding success. People are buying a lot more wine. Gosh, I hope they're not drinking it all at once. All that and more on Uptown Radio. But first, the news. From Columbia Radio News in New York, I'm Cecily Moran. The House of Representatives is expected to vote later today on an additional relief package totaling $3 trillion. The vote comes as data released today shows a decline of over 16% in retail and food services in April, the largest monthly in over a decade and a half. Unemployment numbers were also updated today, up to 14%, and that's a 10-point increase since March. Earlier this month, Governor Cuomo set criteria for a safe time to reopen businesses in the state. Five regions have met the criteria and today begin the first phase of reopening. Central New York, North Country, Finger Lakes, Southern Tier, and Mohawk Valley will restart construction, manufacturing, and wholesale businesses. In this morning's press conference, Governor Cuomo said that New York's approach is safe and scientific. This reopening is the most data-driven, fact-specific, science-driven reopening that has been done. More on that coming up. As some regions of the state begin the shift to normal life, New York City has to wait. Last night, Cuomo announced he's extending the stay-at-home order for both New York City and Long Island until May 28th. Hospital admissions remain higher than allowed under the criteria to reopen. State beaches, though, will be open for Memorial Day weekend. In an effort to maintain social distancing, Mayor de Blasio yesterday added 12 more miles of open streets and nine of protected bike lanes in the city. More New Yorkers are likely to head outside. Temperatures today reach a high of 78 degrees, with a possible chance of showers and thunderstorms this evening. Tomorrow will also be nice, a high of 74 and sunny. Sunday will be a little cooler, in the 60s and partly sunny. For Columbia Radio News, I'm Cecily Moran. Today, five regions in New York are opening a limited number of businesses. Manufacturing, construction, and agricultural companies can now go back to work. And some retail stores can offer curbside pickup. These are businesses that have high economic value to their regions and low risk of human contact. So control rooms of local officials in each region decided that they'd be a part of the new first phase of reopening. The mayor of Utica, Robert Palmieri, is a part of the regional control room in the Mohawk Valley region. I asked him about how government officials are planning the economic reopening. This is more of a a marathon than it is a, a sprint. And I think each phase that we have will be a a phase that brings into the next level of um, a new normal. Uh, It it certainly won't be a a normal for a while uh, to the level that we all understand and and kind of uh, grew up with. Each level will be a little bit more of the the contact with with each, each and every one of us. You said this phase is coming at an opportune time for your city. How has the coronavirus affected Utica economically thus far? All you have to look at is the number of jobs that have been lost, the fact that these businesses have been closed down for several months. So this has a tremendous impact all the way through. At some point, we may have to make some uh, drastic changes within within government. And uh, we have gone through that once before. In 2012, the city of Utica was close to bankruptcy. And we reduced our, our, our workforce by roughly 20%. So this is uh, kind of like the second a- exercise. And so moving forward, you know you're in phase one of the reopening process. But I want to know, for a place like Utica, what's the best case scenario in terms of opening areas back up and making sure that everything goes as smooth as possible? In order for us initially to be one of only three other regions to open up, and you know the other ones have followed since, 
which means that we were getting a lot of compliance from our residents. People were doing stay at home. They were doing the six foot. They were wearing the mask. They were providing all the necessary steps in order for us to get to this level. So as we move into this first phase, I'm sure the residents are going to comply and do all the things we have to do so we can get into the next second phase, the third phase, and get back into the new normal um, that we fully don't understand at this time. If for some reason you do see a second wave, what's the plan of potentially rolling back the phases? Well, it would be, uh, if God forbid, uh, we, we have a resurgence, uh, you, would, you would pause at your first phase and not be able to go to your, your phase two. And so, uh, again, um, we're going to do everything in our power to work with all the taxpayers that are out there and all the men and women that are out there to make sure that uh, we are compliant. And I think that uh, uh, the residents will self-comply. And so my last question is, you talked a lot about the new normal. And I want to know, what is normal in the city of Utica right now? And how do you envision normal being in the next few months as you start to reopen? So so where we were, we were probably one of the cities uh, in, in New York State that has son a resurgence in our downtown, in our development. We're building a new hospital. Uh, our downtowns are occupied with lofts. Uh, the millennials, uh, we're enjoying all the great eateries we have. We are a, a very uh, warm and welcoming community. We are, uh, we are a melting pot. So we, we had a lot going for us, and we will continue to have an awful lot going for us. Um, but the new normal is, at this point, is you have social distancing, you have masks, you have all the requirements that you have to do to keep this horrible, horrible pandemic uh, at bay. Mayor Robert Palmieri, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's been a pleasure, and, and the only thing I would say to all your listeners out there is be mindful that we're not out of the woods yet, and the only way we come out of the woods is that we all kind of work together. It's hot today. The temperature in Manhattan reached the low 80s this afternoon. As New Yorkers get a preview of air conditioning weather, they're worried about the economic strain of a summer staying at home. Now Mayor Bill de Blasio is petitioning the state to help New Yorkers pay their summer energy bills. Emily Pisacreta has more. If you're like many New Yorkers, you're working or studying at home. You have the lights on, you have a computer and a phone plugged in. And starting today, you might be turning on your air conditioner. Noah Rauschkolb is a PhD candidate in mechanical engineering at Columbia University. He says when it comes to electricity usage, now every day of the week is like a weekend. You know, you've got kind of more steady energy use throughout the day. We're not seeing this trend so much where you've got a morning peak and then people leave for work and then come back in the afternoon. Data from Columbia's Earth Institute suggests that while energy usage in the city has decreased overall, New Yorkers are using an average of 23 percent more energy during the day at home. That means higher bills. It's certainly going to hit harder for people for whom energy costs are a much bigger portion of of their expenses who are already having trouble paying. According to the U.S. Energy Information Administration, even before the pandemic, a third of Americans had trouble affording their electric bills. Con Edison has already announced that it won't shut off New Yorkers' electricity due to nonpayment during the pandemic. de Blasio says 450,000 residents receive a subsidy to help pay their summer utility bills. But with COVID-19, he's asking the state to double those subsidies. Summer utility bills go up. This summer, they could go up a lot more because more and more people are staying home, sheltering in place. Still, PhD candidate Noah Rauschkolb says that while energy bills for tenants and homeowners are sure to increase this summer, the demand for energy overall is dropping. That's because of all the businesses and schools which have closed. And that could offset some of the price for consumers. Emily Pizzacreta, Columbia Radio News. The Supreme Court is expected to announce a decision before the end of this month about Trump's move to end DACA, or the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Act. DACA granted hundreds of thousands of people brought to the U.S. as children the right to work and study. As Kira Long reports, the impending decision brings added stress for one DACA recipient and her family in New York City. Like a lot of households during the pandemic, 29-year-old Rue's family is cooking together. Last month, the whole family watched as Rue's mother taught her younger cousin how to make Chinese breadsticks. She places the dough in front of him. Rue's cousin starts poking the dough with the end of the rolling pin. Rue's mother takes the rolling pin from him, flips it to horizontal, and shows him how to roll the dough out. Rue is a DACA recipient but we won't be using her full name because some members of her family are undocumented. When the pandemic hit, 
Rue's family lost their jobs and came to stay with her in New York. So if I count the members in my family, my, my two younger siblings, my two parents, and um, my four-year-old cousin and his mom, that's six. So it's like all of a sudden, I have six dependents. Rue is a hospital administrator, which means that right now, she's also an essential worker and can't work from home. She's worried about getting the coronavirus and about spreading it to her family. But she has to keep working to cover her family's bills. She earns around $2,300 a month after tax, but rent eats up almost two thirds of that. And then um, phone bills is roughly 250, 750, and then utility is about 100. Um, internet is about another 100. So that's, um, we're looking at, hold a second, 450, 1950. Plus food for a family of six, Rue's Metro card, and her student loan repayments. Things are tight for Rue, and they could get worse before the end of the month, which is the Supreme Court's deadline to decide whether President Trump's attempt to rescind DACA was legal. I wish it doesn't happen. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> How do you feel about that? It, it really is kind of hard to feel because I don't know what to feel. The Supreme Court's impending decision isn't about whether or not the DACA program was legal in the first place, but whether President Trump's 2017 attempt to terminate the program was legal. But Juan Escalante, an immigration advocate and DACA recipient, says that if Trump's actions are upheld, the DACA program is one step closer to being eliminated. Well, the immediate consequences of the program terminating would be, you know, uh, felt uh, at, at all levels of society, right? Um, you know, particularly you will see the, deep, the potential deportation of 700,000 people. In 2018, the Mayor's Office for Immigrant Affairs in New York estimated that 150,000 residents across the city benefited from the program. What would it mean to you if the Supreme Court decided that you had to, to leave? What would you do? As the saying goes, I will work my butt off. If Rue loses her status, she says her family won't have any way to pay rent or buy food. So her plan A is to get sponsored by her employer, and her plan B... Should that route fail, um, then I might have to... <laughs> I don't know. I might have to think about um, employing my earlier entrepreneurial uh, dreams and skills. I'm not going back to China. And I'm not going to marry someone so that I can have my green card. Getting married to become a citizen is a suggestion that Rue has heard from a lot of well-meaning acquaintances, but she thinks it's a step too far. Liz Uyang, a civil rights attorney who works with the New York chapter of the Organization of Chinese Americans, says that New York's high costs of living make it a hard place for anyone to survive at the best of times. It's even harder if you're undocumented and don't necessarily have a stable job. Often... The DACA recipient may be the one who is earning money for the family. And during this time of COVID-19 and rampant unemployment, it could add devastation to already a very dire situation. Uyang says that DACA recipients like Rue are under a lot of psychological pressure right now. But Asian Americans are facing another pressure too. Persons of Asian descent right now U.S. citizens who are Asian descent, lawful permanent residents, and undocumented have to fear not only getting COVID-19, but also being attacked. In early March, before New York's lockdown, Rue was taking the subway to church. My features are quite Asian. My black hair, my brown eyes. She took a seat next to a stranger. The minute I sat down, she got up. Like she shut, like she just shut up off her seat. She was so, so afraid of me. Like I'm the virus itself. Between waiting for the Supreme Court's decision, figuring out how to pay the bills, worrying about getting sick, and coronavirus era racism, all of this can add up to a lot of stress for DACA recipients like Rue. Audrey Pan is an organizer with RAISE, a nonprofit supporting Asian communities on the East Coast, which has been preparing for the DACA decision for months. Rays is working with lawyers, brainstorming ways for DACA recipients to find work and health insurance if they lose their status, and connecting them to mental health professionals. A decision could come out any week. So we've been having bi-weekly meetings, um, and for a lot of folks, this is just a space to really vent and really talk about how they're feeling right now, which is incredible anxiety, incredible amount of stress. 
Rue takes refuge from the stress by finding small moments of joy. Towards the end of April, she and her family were able to put aside their fears, just for a moment, for her brother's 12th birthday. Okay. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. It is also the first time Michael gets to celebrate his birthday with both of our parents. The first time in a very, very, very long time. It's these moments of happiness that drive us, that propel us forward, and that tells us no matter what, we will survive this together. I think that's the same for my work. And it's the same for my life at home, for my family. Rue, like many other DACA recipients, is facing a lot of uncertainties. Every day when she goes to work at the hospital, she worries about getting sick and infecting her family. But she says her family is enduring and won't disintegrate, even if their legal status does. Kira Long, Columbia Radio News. And now the latest installment of our series, Voices of the City. There were several aspects of loss that we were all feeling. And we knew that if we were feeling it, that the majority of people, if not everyone right now at a global scale, is going through something similar. Tamara Jamil, architect and co-creator of CV19 Memorial, a website for sharing stories of the pandemic. We recognized quickly that people want to speak out of ways they just feel completely unbalanced during this time. And a lot of the submissions have been people that are carers and medical workers. So it's been really breathtaking to read. You really see yourself amongst everybody else who in this moment is feeling uncertain, is feeling pain is feeling frustrated. We remember we are a global community and that you have other people that are going through this with you and you are not alone. Voices of the City on Uptown Radio. As more COVID-19 patients recover and are released from the hospital, inpatient rehab centers are being stretched to their limits. That's because many COVID patients who are ready to leave the ICU aren't quite ready to go home yet. Ventilators and ICUs can mean the difference between life and death for these patients, but they can come with their own adverse health effects. And as Lucas Brady-Woods reports, sometimes those effects can be severe. Brian DeCastro's younger brother got COVID-19 in March. They lived together, and DeCastro took care of him. Eventually, everyone in their family got it. Fever, cough, shortness of breath. Then one night, DeCastro couldn't catch his breath. His fever spiked, and he had to be rushed to St. Barnabas Hospital outside of Newark, where he was immediately put on a ventilator. When they started incubating me, like putting the tubes down my throat, it was very, very hard to breathe. And they had put the anesthetic in me, but I could still hear. And and I I heard the nurses say, he's starting to code. His heart is going to stop soon. What should you do? He might die. I was loopy. He was on a ventilator, heavily sedated and basically unconscious for two weeks. When I woke up, it just... I was, I didn't know where I was, and I couldn't walk. It was his 39th birthday that day, but after laying in bed for two weeks, his leg muscles had atrophied. Well, they had a physical therapist to, like, evaluate my situation, and it was, it was really hard to, to walk. Like, I could only, like, walk a couple feet, and then I'd be, like, super winded. So DeCastro was transported via ambulance from the hospital's ICU to an inpatient rehabilitation center. He was put on a floor designated entirely for patients recovering from COVID-19. It helped me walk. It literally helped me walk again. Um, I, 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 at first, I needed the help of a walker. And then I, I, you know, like after a couple of days, I was able to get to a cane. After about 10 days in the rehab facility, DeCastro was finally able to go home on May 8th. It had been more than a month since he had last seen his family. Bronte Cardenas is a physical therapist at Burke Rehabilitation Hospital and works with patients who are recovering from COVID. She says it doesn't take long in an ICU bed for patients to lose their normal strength your muscles start breaking down, you start getting weaker, even just one day. Continue that for a few days, a week, longer than that. Um, You're going to get really deconditioned. 
Without exercise or movement, being in the ICU can also affect a patient's heart and their skeletal system. Your bones are becoming more brittle over time because bones need um, exercise to stay strong. So some patients can come out of two weeks on a ventilator or not on a ventilator and have osteoporosis. That makes it easier to break a bone. The ventilator's breathing tubes can even damage patients' vocal cords. Cardena says that she's noticed a particularly wide spectrum of different conditions in her patients recovering from the virus. I've had patients who they sit up um, in their bed and they can't tolerate it and they have to lay back down because their oxygen levels are going down. But then I've seen patients who they have something else going on. They have clots, they have um, kidney issues, they suffered a stroke. She says the rehab facility where she works has been at or over capacity for more than a month. In the gyms, which are normally used for physical therapy exercises, equipment has been replaced with hospital beds. They're now doing exercises with patients in their rooms and in the hallways. Dr. Marilyn Moffat is a professor of physical therapy at New York University who specializes in cardiovascular and pulmonary rehabilitation. People are realizing that more and more of these patients need physical therapy um, post-COVID-19. If they've been hospitalized, they need to be in the hands of somebody who can really guide them to get them back effectively and well. She says it's naive to think people could recover on their own or without specialized help. And you want to do it under the eyes of somebody who really knows the pathophysiology, understands what has gone on in ICUs and all the concomitant problems of being intubated, and just don't go off to somebody because, you know, some person has said, oh, here's somebody who knows some exercise and you can do that. She says the rehab system is facing a surge as patients recover from the coronavirus. She thinks the system can handle the increase, but facilities will have to adapt. The intensity and the numbers are, are a problem only because of the shifting that one has to do in providing services. And I think the social distancing and the six feet and the cleaning and the protective equipment and all those things are going to be maintained for certainly as far as I can see, in foreseeable future. Even though patients have recovered from the virus, facilities still need to take precautions to protect staff and other patients. Plus, it's still unclear if recovered patients can get reinfected. But even when patients do go home, Moffat says they're still going to have a lot of work to do. Doing a toe stand exercise. I usually do three reps of 30. Before Brian DeCastro left rehab, his physical therapist gave him exercises to continue on his own. When I raise my feet, my heels are up. It's uh, a little pain. But he's starting to understand that recovery from the virus is a long process. Mentally, it's great to be back home. Um, physically, I, I just need to get my, my legs where it used to be pre-COVID. It's been three weeks since he woke up in the ICU. Making progress takes time, which he says can be frustrating. I'm, I'm probably at like, I would say 60 or 70% right now. I just want to be able to, to walk and stand up for long periods of time. DeCastro says he's had to learn to be patient during recovery. He plans to continue his treatment exercises, but he's realized he doesn't have the tools to get the results he wants on his own. So he's already found a physical therapist to evaluate him at home and is planning to find an outpatient clinic where he can continue his recovery. Lucas Brady-Woods, Columbia Radio News. And now, the latest installment of our series, Voices of the City. I'm feeling a little bit anxious about the day just because I don't ever know quite what's going to happen. Dr. Susanna Hills, head and neck surgeon at New York Presbyterian Hospital. Taking care of these tracheostomy, uh, breathing tube patients with COVID is about 99% of my job right now. We're trying to manage, you know, 115 patients with tracheostomies. So yeah, we'll see. I'm uh, pulling up to the hospital now. I'll check in with you later. One of our patients just got their tracheostomy breathing tube out. So we're all celebrating dancing in the hallway. Well, I am on my way home from the hospital right now. Um, two weeks ago, it seemed like things were just going to keep getting worse. Um, and now we're actually seeing 
patients get out of the intensive care units. And, and that is just such a huge relief. At least there's some sort of um, end in sight. And now for the next installment in our commentary series. Reporter Lauren Peace recalls the time she became the accidental perpetrator of a nationwide controversy. About two years ago, I got a Fulbright grant to spend nine months in Pristina, Kosovo. I planned on writing a series of magazine stories on the women's movement there. Kosovo is a traditional patriarchal place, and I wanted to highlight stories about women who were trying to change that. But once I was there, I hit a wall. I found myself immobilized by the feeling that I was an outsider parachuting in. So instead of writing, I decided to photograph and record women telling their own stories. The problem was I wasn't sure how I could get anyone to pay attention. If I held an exhibition in a gallery, the only people who would show up already supported the movement. I wanted this to be something everyone would see, so I decided to use a public space. There's a famous monument in Kosovo. It's called the Newborn Monument. It's just seven blocky letters, 10 feet tall, that spell the word. People think of it as a symbol for the new Kosovo, Almost like Kosovo's Statue of Liberty, but in the center of town where thousands of cars drive by every day. It seemed to me the perfect canvas for the project. But I didn't want to just tack up a few portraits discreetly. I wanted to cover the entire thing with portraits of the women and the stories they told. When I asked the municipality for their permission to cover the monument, something that hadn't been done before, they surprisingly said yes. For days, I stayed up all night, making the giant prints. Then, the night before the opening, I grabbed 50 rolls of black duct tape and four of my friends, and we stayed up taping the prints to the monument. It was like wrapping a jagged Christmas present the size of a two-bedroom apartment. By the time the sun came up, we had done it. There on the monument were the faces and stories of 99 women ages 15 to 73. One of the women displayed had founded the Domestic Violence Investigations Unit for the local police force. Another was the first female filmmaker in Kosovo to finish a feature. There was a national team athlete and women who were doctors and activists during the war. We sat nearby, exhausted, and as the city awakened, crowds began to gather around the monument, interacting with the work. The first two hours were great, And then it all went downhill. It started when Adafeta Yayaga, the former president of Kosovo, showed up with an entourage of press in tow. I hadn't even thought about what I would do if the press came. I didn't even have a paragraph of what to say. And now suddenly I'm standing next to the president in front of the monument, sweaty, sleepless and bewildered. I thought to myself, what have I done? People saw the monument and were livid. Some of the women resented being on the sculpture alongside other women they disliked. Others were furious they'd been left off. Men were angry because images of women were taking up public space. Social media exploded. There was hate mail. For the next week, the project and I were at the center of a national controversy that unfolded each night on the evening news. It seemed I had done the exact opposite of what I had originally intended to do. Rather than elevate the stories of women, I had surrounded them with feuds and resentment and anger. The display was up for a week. Then I took it down. The next day, I flew home. During that long final week in Kosovo, anytime I saw a new article or post about the project, I cringed. But now, a year later, friends still occasionally send me new articles that reference the event. When I read those today, I can't help but smile. The prints from the project are now taking up space in a closet in Lauren's childhood basement. She stays away from national monuments for fear of getting big ideas. You're listening to Uptown Radio. There's more to come. Stay with us. You're listening to Uptown Radio. I'm Tay Glass. And I'm Will Walkie. 
School districts across the state are scrambling to figure out a system for remote elections. And COVID-19 is complicating long-term care for both patients and caregivers. These stories and more coming up. Prisons are becoming hotspots for the spread of coronavirus in the U.S. Overcrowding, lack of hygiene, and access to medical attention is raising health concerns for those who are incarcerated. And that's especially true for incarcerated women, who tend to have higher rates of pre-existing conditions than men do. Megan Cattell reports. Half a dozen protesters gathered across the street from the Bedford Hills Correctional Facility in Westchester County today. Two weeks ago, an inmate there named Darlene Benson Say died from the coronavirus. Freedom now. Dressed in black t-shirts and surgical masks, they held up signs that read Cuomo let them go and live streamed the rally on Zoom. They called for the prisons to release inmates and for them to be supplied with proper PPE while incarcerated. Javeda Senhouse was incarcerated at Bedford for five years and still keeps in touch with the woman inside the prison. I have a friend that she don't have a mask. Um, she's wearing um, a pillowcase around her face right now. Bedford Correctional Facilities didn't respond to a request for comment about its safety protocols. Neither did state officials. But a report from New York's Department of Corrections and Community Supervision says it is supplying surgical masks to all inmates and is isolating those who may be exposed to the virus. Governor Andrew Cuomo has also ordered the release of over 1,000 people in jail for violating parole. But women's prisons have historically received less attention and resources, says Brenda Smith, a professor of law at American University. Any strategy that had anything to do with prisons, that they would also be the last to receive resources. Smith says that's especially troubling now, since women in custody also have higher rates of pre-existing conditions than incarcerated men and the general population. Illnesses like diabetes, asthma, and blood disorders that increase the risk of complications if they contract coronavirus. Megan Cattell, Columbia Radio News. Roughly 12 million people in the U.S. need long-term care. Due to chronic conditions, disabilities, or rare diseases, they need home health aides or personal care assistance to help them with the activities of daily life. But the coronavirus pandemic has complicated access to that care. As Sarah Gelbard reports, some aides no longer want to enter people's homes, and some people are wary about the exposure caregivers might bring. Michelle Kaplan is wearing a rainbow dress and rainbow socks. Colorful portraits she painted are lined up on the windowsill in her Manhattan apartment. I love to write. I love to make art. I love to make music and listen to music. She makes pandemic playlists on Spotify for every mood with lots of 60s era rock and roll. She listens to the song I Want to Be Your Dog by the Stooges when she's frustrated. She says it makes her feel kind of badass. Kaplan describes herself as proudly disabled. She has a neurologic condition and needs personal care assistance, or PCAs, eight hours a day, seven days a week. I used to work, but uh, my health went <clears throat> and so that was back in 2006. Uh, right now, I'm mostly bedbound. Recently, it's been really challenging to find consistent care. One of her regular assistants abruptly stopped working when the pandemic began. She just left me a message saying, hey, Michelle, uh, she was supposed to come in like that that morning. She was going to come in. And then around 10 o'clock, she's like, I'm not coming to work. And she just did not feel safe coming to work. And then all of a sudden, I have no PCA for the weekday. The assistant didn't feel safe working without personal protective equipment, which her agency wasn't providing. Then one of Kaplan's assistants got sick and another decided to stay home for his immune-compromised partner. Kaplan had to replace them with strangers. One was also working in a hospital, which made Kaplan nervous about her exposure to the virus. The next spoke a different language. Dana Arnone runs Reliance Home Senior Services, an agency in Queens. She spent $30,000 to provide her employees with personal protective equipment, but many of them are still choosing to stay home. Schools are closed, they have no child care, they are afraid of exposure to coronavirus. They are terrified to get on a bus. 
They're terrified to get on the subway, but they're getting up, they're going to the patient's home, they're fully gowned, they're masked. So, and they're just as fearful at times to go into the patient's home as well as the patient is afraid to have them in their home as well. Even though clients need this care, they're making difficult choices to try to limit their exposure. 97% of agencies across the country reported that some people have chosen to discontinue use of AIDS during the pandemic, according to the National Association for Home Care and Hospice. Sometimes family members are stepping in to fill the gaps. Ariella Barker is an attorney and a graduate student at Harvard. She has spinal muscular atrophy, a rare and progressive neuromuscular disease. When her assistant couldn't access coronavirus testing, Barker chose to rely on her mother as a full-time caregiver. But in the end, she still found herself exposed to risk. A couple of weeks ago, she developed a UTI and had to go to the hospital. Ultimately, I had to go in to the doctors in a hospital. I encountered quite a few people just to be able to ensure that I was getting the proper treatment. People who require care can't isolate themselves, says Michelle Mead. She's a psychologist at the University of Michigan. It's not just then your own personal behaviors. It's the behaviors of those individuals you come into close contact with that you're impacted by. Mead says those with certain chronic conditions may have higher risk for complications if they contract coronavirus. Lifelong New Yorker T.K. Small is aware of the risks, but he decided to maintain his regular team. Like Barker, he has spinal muscular atrophy. He needs assistance with any physical activity. My muscles don't work, so I need to have people help me with everything from washing, getting dressed, going to the bathroom, meal preparation. I need my assistance to help me eat because I can't chew and swallow all that well. He feels fortunate that his assistants continue to come to work for him while he knows other assistants have stayed home. Other workers had kids or family members that they had to stay home and take care of, and they understandably couldn't put the disabled person ahead of the family member, so the disabled person got put on the back burner. Now, his assistants are wearing gloves and masks and aggressively cleaning cell phones, doorknobs, and countertops. He would rather have them keep working so he can maintain his quality of life. He's been practicing law for over 25 years. I, I like the life that I lead. Is it perfectly safe? Maybe not, but I don't want to be so protected and afraid of everything around me that I end up just afraid of the world. I, I can't do that. I can't do that. I'm, I'm certainly exposed. But I don't really see that I have a choice. Coronavirus may complicate care, but he still thinks it's essential. Sarah Gelbard, Columbia Radio News. After an executive order from Governor Cuomo, elections for New York State school boards are going remote. That means school districts have to make sure every eligible voter gets a mail-in ballot. And many school districts say they haven't received any additional funding or much guidance on how to meet these new requirements. And the deadline for these ballots to be returned is in less than a month. Aaron Palace teaches education policy at Columbia University Teachers College. I asked him what it's like to be a school district representative trying to get this done. Uh, confusing and hectic, I think. Um, <laughs> School boards, quite frankly, are probably working more on just figuring out their budget circumstances because I believe they have to try to finalize their budgets by May 21st, which is just a few short days away. Uh, so it's, it's a, a very tense time, I think. Uh, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges uh, with this whole new mail-in school board election system? There have always been absentee ballots in state school board um, elections, but there's never been an instance in which the entire election is done via mail-in ballots. And the challenge of developing the ballots, printing them, distributing them to all the appropriate qualified voters, and getting them returned in a time that allows them to be counted given the, the requirements that ballots be received by, I think, 5 p.m. on June 9th. Uh, it's really quite a challenge. 
And um, I think there are a lot of districts that are very worried that the legit, that they'll be they'll screw it up, frankly, that that something will go wrong. So yeah, what are some of the school districts doing to sort of mitigate these um, potential risks? That's a great question because I think that the New York State School Board administration is still hoping for ongoing guidance from uh, the governor's office. Uh, I believe they're supposed to send out postcards notifying uh, uh, potential voters uh, about the election, but even the mechanism of determining who's a qualified voter is, is messy because the executive order did not provide any mechanism for districts to enroll register, registered voters um, via mail. You know, overlaying on top of this, the, the complication that you've got two elections going on at the same time, elections for membership on a school board and a budget referendum. And particularly with the financial pressures and challenges that districts are facing in this extraordinary time, they don't really know what their budget situation looks like. How about like on the other side? Are there any potential benefits to having everybody mail in their ballots? Uh, I think in general, it's desirable to, to make it as easy to vote as possible for people who are in fact eligible and qualified to do so. And historically, they're having elections on, a, on even, even with extended hours, having them on, on what is often a work day for many people uh, makes it difficult for them to get to a polling location uh, to cast a ballot that they are in fact eligible uh, and qualified to, to cast. So I think that there is some potential uh, benefit in making it more accessible. And if it goes well, which would be lovely, uh, it could serve as a, a foreshadowing of attempts to try to do mail-in uh, uh, mail voting on a broader scale. Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. That was Aaron Pallas, chair of the Department of Education Policy and Social Analysis at Columbia University Teachers College. Since the pandemic hit, universities and students have been forced to finish the semester with online classes. That sparked conversation about the value and effectiveness of remote learning. Some colleges have said classes will be online again this fall. And as Lauren Peace reports, that's raising complicated questions about higher education and interactive learning. Noelle Nafis is a high school senior, and last fall, when she was touring colleges, she fell in love with Barnard. I was standing on this terrace and looking at the New York City buildings all around us. I just felt like I was home and this is where I was meant to be. Nafis was accepted to Barnard and was looking forward to moving to the city from her hometown in Rochester, New York in the fall. But instead, she's one of many incoming college students who will likely be starting school from her computer at home. I was really looking forward to orientation week and I just don't think it really works if we started online. In the last few days, major academic institutions like Harvard Medical School and Cal State have announced plans to move all fall classes online. Most colleges in New York City still haven't decided whether or not to bring students back to classrooms. Paul Glader is a professor of journalism at the King's College in Lower Manhattan. He says, most schools are having internal discussions about the most effective ways to take their programs online. How do we establish the bonds, uh, the classroom kind of atmosphere we want to have, the culture of learning we want to have? That's on the mind of professors around the country. What we're doing today in light of COVID, I don't consider that really online learning. I consider that emergency learning. Hope Kentner is a professor and consultant who spent the last several years researching and coaching course instructors on best practices for remote education. She says when classes went online this spring, Colleges were improvising. Most professors had to make the adjustment within a period of just two weeks. When I work with a university or a professor to develop their online course, it's a six-month lead time. I find that the reticence towards online learning is mostly due to faculty, administrators, universities not really understanding what's involved in a quality online course. Schools going online have three months to redevelop the entire curriculum to make it work. Many schools already offer some form of remote learning, and long-distance learning has been conducted and studied for years. Tom Tobin is a program director of distance teaching and learning at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. 
He says the first documented example of distance learning goes back as early as the 1700s, an ad for shorthand lessons in the Boston Gazette. He started with uh, distance education in the postal mail. Tobin says one of the primary goals of distance learning has always been to make education more accessible. Until fairly recently, a lot of prospective students weren't able to get to a college campus. Professors would send out lecture materials, students would read them, they would send them back. And that was a way to break down barriers of distance for students who didn't live near a university. After print, radio lessons followed. This little idiom of speech. Then television and lessons on VHS tapes. The first of this afternoon's programs for schools and colleges, words and pictures, follows in one And then finally, the internet. That's when distance learning really began to boom. Through all these iterations in distance learning, success always comes down to what Tobin sees as a few key points. Do you have opportunities to practice? Is the content engaging and interactive? Do you get to interact with the materials, with your classmates, with your instructor, and with the wider world? Are you making those connections? And he says those are still the goals that schools need to meet as they reinvent their classes for the fall. Kathy Tommaso is a professor of English and the writing coordinator at Bronx Community College. She says meeting those standards with online learning may just be unrealistic. Most professors do not want to teach online. They don't think it's as effective. I agree with that. Most of them want to be back in the classroom. I mean, just the type of relationships and interaction and check-in that you're able to do with students is entirely different in an online setting. It just is. And Di Tommaso also says not all students can effectively participate in distance learning, since it requires high-speed internet, workspace, and a computer at home, which for many students at her college is not the reality. A lot of students, even if they're taking online classes, they still do the work on campus in the computer labs. So a lot of the students that I have had a hard time with the shift because they didn't have computers at home. Some fields of study are especially challenging to bring online. Adeline Gomez is a third-year theater student at the New School. She says studying acting means creating work together, face-to-face. -to -face. I would have normally been doing scenes working together to create like a 90-minute piece with the other students in the course. And instead, I had to create a seven-minute piece by myself in my house. The in-person interactions are what drew her to her major, and without them, Class can be difficult to get through. Our classes are two and a half to three hours long, which doesn't feel very long when you're moving around in a room with a bunch of people and you're doing the thing that you love to do. But it does feel really long when you're sitting in front of a computer for three hours. If classes remain online this fall, Gomez says she's going to delay her graduation and resume her studies at the new school when it's safe to be back on stage. But colleges don't have the option of taking a year off. And neither do professors. Paul Glader, the professor at King's College, says he's experimenting now with discussion boards and virtual lectures to find ways to facilitate student collaborations online. We're kind of being forced into this new world now of online teaching and online learning, whether we want to or not. So I'm embracing it. Glader says he doesn't have all of the answers yet, but he's on a task force at King's College to examine the possibilities and plan for fall. Lauren Peace, Columbia Radio News. And now for the next installment in our commentary series. Reporter Kira Long got over her fear of public speaking by speaking. When I was younger, I was really shy. In school, I was the kid in class who went deep red if the teacher called on me. I've always hated speaking up in groups, terrified of getting something wrong in front of everyone. But when I was 11, I started learning languages and something began to change. Somehow, when teachers asked, ¿Dónde está la biblioteca? Or, ¿Qu'est-ce que tu fais ce fin de semaine? I wasn't as scared to raise my hand and answer. I still blushed and squirmed in the hard plastic school chairs, but for the first time in my life, I felt like I was naturally good at something. It didn't seem to take as much work as everything else. I stayed shy, though until more than a decade later, when I left my job to spend six months in Brazil. I didn't speak Portuguese, but I figured I could learn. Something about Portuguese clicked for me. 
Maybe it was the language's way of telling stories in concentric circles, so that you hint and hover and build to an anecdote's crescendo. Maybe it was the casual dark humour Brazilians used to talk about traumatic events, or the genuineness of everyone I spoke to. Maybe it was just that I was going to make mistakes no matter what I did, so they stopped being as embarrassing. In my first few weeks, I was introduced to a delicious Brazilian snack, cheese bread, or pão de queijo. They're golden, centimetre-wide cloves with crispy outsides and chewy, cheesy centres. In Rio's humidity, they're the perfect light, salty, satisfying mid-afternoon bite. But one of the first times I tried to order them, as I approached the bored, pouting server behind a diner counter, I tried to ask for a coffee and a portion of cheese breads. The server looked up from inspecting her nails to raise an eyebrow and waited for me to realise what I'd said. See, pronunciation can make a big difference in Portuguese. Pão de queijo is cheese bread. But what I had asked for, pão de queijo, means cheese dick. There's not a lot you can do when you realise you've accidentally asked for cheese dick in a diner, in front of a dozen or so people, plenty of whom are old enough to be your grandparents. I felt a familiar embarrassment warming up in my cheeks, took a deep breath and stuttered my order again, this time pronouncing it right. And I kept making mistakes, but somehow each time it got less and less terrifying. Without meaning to, I had created an alter ego, a person who could speak publicly, openly, articulately, without worrying about being wrong. Sometimes I was even funny, on purpose. I've never been funny. When I left Brazil, I worried that I would leave this other version of myself behind. Would I go back to being that painfully shy, awkward person who mumbled in classes or meetings? Going back to the town I had come from, would I regress? But back at home, I ran into someone from high school on a packed rush hour train into London from my parents' house in the suburbs. We had never spoken in school. We had that weird moment where it takes you a minute to figure out where you know someone from, and that moment where the penny drops, your eyes widen, and you both exclaim, You! He wove his way through the carriage's crowd so we could sit next to each other for the hour-long train ride, and we chatted about what had happened in both of our lives since high school. Halfway through the journey, he said, You never used to speak. I can't believe you talk now. I can't really believe I talk, either. It's still hard. But that moment was when I realised I hadn't lost a part of myself when I lost the chance to speak in Portuguese. Making mistakes is normal, and I had found a way to accept that I, like everyone else, would make mistakes. So now, when I'm trying to find the courage to speak up in crowded classes at graduate school, I remind myself, I'll probably keep saying stupid things for as long as I'm alive, and that doesn't make anything I have to say less worthy. And now, for the latest installment in our series, Voices in the City. Today, we hear from someone who is getting through quarantine with a little help from Animal Crossing. The Nintendo Switch game was released on March 20th and has become a quarantine escape for many in the United States. The very first thing I do in the morning is usually play Animal Crossing. So, let's... here we go. Turn on my Switch. Keishia, who lives in the actual neighborhood Bensonhurst, Brooklyn. The game came out during my first week of working from home. You start off the game as a childlike character who just got into a new village or town and just basically built out, you know, the way you vision your ideal town to look like. It has been tough being Asian in America since COVID-19 was identified. I think I really started to get worried and scared to go outside when news about Asians or Asian Americans in New York start to get verbal attacks on a subway. I felt a lot of tension when I was on a subway and I knew some people purposely stayed away from me when I got on the train. All the stress really put me into a dark place. But playing Animal Crossing allows me to escape to a different world where I can be anyone I want. It felt like I'm 
part of a group and we're bonded together not should be not because of the game but also we're bonded by how we feel from the pandemic i guess you can say it's similar to having a support group in real life voices in the city on uptown radio May is normally the time of year that tourists start flocking to New York State's 400 wineries. Together, these wineries sell over half a billion dollars worth of wine each year. But now, the pandemic has forced tasting rooms to close, and it's stalled wine sales to restaurants. So to make up for lost business, wineries have had to figure out how to sell more wine directly to consumers. But as Asim Shukla reports, wineries that already have direct consumer relationships are best positioned to ride things out. And those who don't are facing an uphill battle. Paul and Shannon Brock own Silver Thread Vineyard, a small winery in the bucolic Finger Lakes region of western New York. And for the past nine weeks, and at least the next three, they've been hosting virtual wine tastings on Facebook Live. Everyone has had the chance to log in and we're ready to get started. I want to talk about um, some of the aromas here from the estate Riesling. You know, right away I noticed that mineral quality. Days after the pandemic forced them to close their winery's tasting room, the Brocks decided that they had to stimulate demand somehow. They'd been selling most of their wine by mail order to existing customers, but that relationship usually started with a winery visit. Without that regular stream of visitors, they needed to figure out something else quickly. On two days' notice, they decided to open sales to whichever of their Facebook followers wanted to join them for a drink on Friday evening, online. So it was a Wednesday, and um, if we it was should, crazy. yeah, it was crazy. she 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 posted at noon and said, "If you order by four o'clock, I'll make sure the order gets to UPS." And the, most people in the Northeast can get UPS shipments in two days. The Brocks say they were not big on social media before this, but as a mom and pop shop with no marketing staff, the whole family had to learn. Even their grade school age daughter got involved, playing piano before the tasting started. That's who you heard earlier. But in a way, these videos play to the Brock's strengths. Paul teaches winemaking at a local community college, and Shannon teaches courses about understanding wine. They're used to explaining things, and some of their videos can get pretty in the weeds. Hi, I'm Paul Brock from Silver Thread Vineyard. Uh, we are nearing the ending of our pruning. They used to be able to charm their customers in person, but they've quickly learned how to do that online. One week, to create a sense of occasion, they asked all their followers to tune in to a tasting dressed up for a night out and to post selfies of their outfits. They've also started a winemaking trivia series. Name the type of tree uh, whose new growth in the spring would be used to tie vines to the wires. We'll draw one lucky winner, and the prize this week is a four-pack of beautiful crystal Riesling glasses. The result of all this online community building? Their customers are putting in 100 orders a week. They're actually selling more wine than they were this time last year. But that direct-to-consumer success story isn't true for all vineyards. Len Wiltberger owns Cuca Spring Vineyards, a few dozen miles west of Silver Thread. Cuca Spring is a bigger winery, and it's won national awards. Still, Wiltberger says that 70% of his business comes from people just walking in the door. Unlike the Brocks, Wilberger doesn't have a particularly big wine club, and the dip in sales means he could go under. Now that he's faced with doing business only online, he's not sure how the season will turn out. Yeah, generally confident, but not completely confident. Mm. <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it, there's a lot of worry out there. Cuca Spring had a regular Facebook presence before the pandemic, but not much by the way of video or direct marketing to wine club members. One of the few videos that Wilberger appears in is from the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge in 2014. Despite that, Wilberger's found that just a little engagement with his Facebook followers goes a long way. I remember my daughter saying, so she's our social media person. And uh, her first message was, we miss you. And, uh, and the response has been good. Uh, it's been a pleasant surprise. <laughs> the Facebook engagement is helping. Wiltberger says his wine club sales are way up. But overall, his business is still down by half compared to last year. Mike Wieseth is an economist who studies the wine industry. He calls his blog The Wine Economist. He says that in order to make up for lost sales in restaurants and tasting rooms, 
direct and supermarket sales have to be up by at least 20%. So far, industry-wide sales are up by even more than that. People are buying a lot more wine. Gosh, I hope they're not drinking it all at once because that would be <laughs> just terrible. But that sales increase isn't happening for all wineries. Although alcohol sales do tend to be recession-proof, Visa thinks the recent bump might fade. If it does, the wineries who will have the best chance of survival are both the biggest ones and those that already have strong relationships with their customers, like the Brocks do at Silver Thread. I often compare the wine industry to the financial services industry. And if you think about a, a local community bank that knows all of their customers, they can survive uh, a downturn because they have such strong relationships that they can draw on. For those who don't, Vizith says, the coming months could spell the end. I do think that you'll see maybe 10% of the wineries fail. Jim Trezizi is a pioneer of the New York wine industry. These days, he's the president of Wine America, an industry group that represents wineries in Washington, D.C. And he says, ultimately, winemakers aren't doing it for the money. You know, I wanted to ask, there's all this, you know, new development and this, you know, this flowering of styles and that kind of thing. Is that going to survive this crisis? It is. And I'll tell you why. You don't get into the wine industry to become rich. If you do, you're making a big mistake. I mean, there's a good old saying from California, which is that if you want to make a small fortune, you start out with a large fortune and buy a winery. Instead, he says, the industry is sustained by winemakers' enthusiasm. I know wine people from around the world, and they're all the same. They're bon vivant. They love to sit around and, and have a glass and have some great food and talk and stuff like that. It's a beautiful group of people. So yes, it will survive and it will prosper. Still, winemakers' enthusiasm doesn't always mean more sales. And even before the pandemic, New York winemakers looking to grow their sales were fighting another battle for respect. For decades, local wine was synonymous with sweet, bland swill made from conquered grapes. But in just the last two decades, winemakers here have gained a reputation for making world-class Rieslings and Cabernet Francs in a tough environment. New York is a very hard place to grow grapes. It's not friendly. It's not, it doesn't have California Mediterranean climate. That's Dylan York, who teaches at the Sommelier Society of America. He says that despite the challenges, New Yorkers are embracing local wines as part of a general movement towards all things local and artisanal. And for continued skeptics of New York wine, York has a simple message. Shut up. Taste it. For the Brocks at Silver Thread, their years of persuading customers to taste it is paying off in this online-only era. And their customers want more. We're going to keep doing virtual events all year, at least for this whole year. We'll probably keep doing it afterward because people really like it. People have said like, oh, can you keep, you know, can you keep doing something? I mean, they always say wine is recession proof. And that seems to be, that seems to be true so far. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I hope we're not breeding any alcoholics. But. What Paul and Shannon do hope is perhaps a glass of Riesling here and there will keep both wineries and morale afloat during the pandemic. Asim Shukla, Columbia Radio News. For the next installment in our commentary series, reporter Jamaris Perez wishes life could be more like the movies. I've never seen The Notebook or Sleepless in Seattle. Romantic movies just aren't my thing. It's really hard to hide my constant scoffing and eye-rolling. I'm supposed to believe that someone with that many abs is that emotionally available? And what's the fascination with professing true love in public places? It's not that I don't believe in love. But my first love wasn't exactly a Hollywood blockbuster. I met him at a history club meeting. After school burger dates turned into going away to college together. And four years later, I was sending him screenshots from the Pinterest board I made. An 18 karat gold entwined halo diamond ring. That's what you were supposed to do. But then I had an unexpected Cinderella moment. My boyfriend and I were going to a wedding in New York. I know there's always a wedding in these kinds of stories. But I had one goal in mind, to see Hamilton. I fell in love with the Tony Award-winning musical the first time I heard it. A history musical and the lead was a fellow Latino from Washington Heights? I was sold. I kept the soundtrack on repeat, which means my poor boyfriend had no choice but to become a fan too. There was just one problem. 
Tickets were already sold out, but I didn't panic. Instead, I made a plan. I set the alarm for 7 a.m. that December morning. We joined a group of eager fans waiting in the cancellation line at the stage door, hoping for a pair of last-minute tickets. We waited in line for more than seven hours. We took turns wrapping ourselves in a red fleece blanket from the Duane Reed down the street. I shivered in line as we inched forward. By 6 p.m., an hour before curtain, we were next in line and I was praying for two more tickets. It was 6.30. People who actually had tickets were lining up for the show. I felt defeated. I made a list of all the other things we could have done instead with a day in New York City. At 6.50, a man asked me what I was in line for. When I told him how long we'd been waiting, he was impressed. Then he did something unexpected. He offered me an extra ticket if I sang a Hamilton song right there on the street. Okay. I was skeptical, but I belted my little Broadway heart out. The rest of the line joined in, and for a moment, it felt like one of those cheesy musical numbers in some movie I'd probably roll my eyes at. And then this fairy godfather actually handed me an extra ticket. His friend wasn't going to be able to make it, and he wanted the ticket to go to a real fan. I had not planned for this. It was five minutes till curtain. I looked over at my boyfriend and the one ticket. I told him I wouldn't go if he didn't want me to. But he gave me his blessing, so I chucked that blanket and raced up to my seat. The lights flashed. The curtains came up. It was happening. My boyfriend waited outside that theater for three hours. You might think I married him, but living by the book doesn't guarantee a happy ending. In real life, people grow up. They grow apart, like my boyfriend and I eventually did. I probably still won't watch The Notebook, but now I know Hollywood magic is possible. Maybe not in the perfect love story, but in an impromptu street performance and the generosity of a stranger. Well, that does it for this edition of Uptown Radio. We hope you enjoyed the show. Executive producer Brett Forrest ran our show from Denver, Colorado. Leading our staff of reporters was senior producer Asim Shukla in Manhattan, with help from Jamaris Perez in Miramar, Florida, Sarah Gelbard in Rochester, New York, and Kira Long in Manhattan. Senior editor Anya Schultz in Mountain View, California, and assistant editor Lauren Peace in Charleston, West Virginia, led our copy team. Cecily Moran in Exeter, Rhode Island, brought us today's news. Lucas Brady Woods managed our website today from Brooklyn, and Megan Cattell and Emily Pisacreta reported the news from Manhattan. Our instructors Sally Herships, Tracy Samuelson, and Camille Peterson advised our staff from Brooklyn, New York, and instructor Ben Shapiro from Western Massachusetts. I'm Tay Glass in Thornberry, Canada. And I'm Will Walkie in Duxbury, Massachusetts. Uptown Radio is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and UptownRadio.org on Friday evenings. This is our final show from the class of 2020. From all of us here at Uptown Radio, we want to thank our listeners for the continued support. Stay safe and signing off until next year.